Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sophia X uh discussion. We're going to be discussing Anselm's Proslogian tonight, uh, specifically the ontological argument. In it. And um, to my right, I have, uh, to your right, from the viewer's point of view, uh, you have Ozymandias Ramses II. Um, probably not real name, just guessing there. Uh, we've got Epicurus AD. Um, and we have Adrian Nelson. Uh, and um, I'm this today. I'm going to be standing in for John F. Uh, all the previous Sophia X Nihilo discussions were um, were hosted by John F. But he's going to do Mondays, and I'm going to do Fridays in the future. So that's the current plan. Um, yeah. So uh, I think we're going to jump in here in a moment. Did do any of you want to maybe talk about um, Anselm? Did, did any of you feel like you can give a biography of him? Oh, well, uh, just for the biography of Anselm, I think I can cover that. Anselm was an Augustinian monk who lived in the, who uh, was of uh, English background. Oh, sorry. Anselm uh, was an Augustinian monk who had, who had British background uh, of Canterbury. He essentially, he was most famous for two works. One was the one we're discussing right now, the Proslogian, but it was preceded by the Monologian, which... Uh, just covered basic smaller arguments. However, in his transition from that to to um, uh, the proslogian, he can He also put forward one ideal proof that was supposed to prove God's existence without a shadow of a doubt, in terms and basically make the notion of God's non-existence to be self-refuting. Uh, that's just a bit of his background in for, in relation to the proslogian and. Uh, where he's from. Uh, would anyone like to fulfill more than I probably missed? Um, I, just one small note. Um, the biography here I have um, says that he actually originally from Italy. Um, but it's just a small note. Um, he, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I've got much bad there. Uh, does anyone else? All right. If if you want to think about his background, um, sorry, hold on a second. Uh, small technical issue. Uh, yeah, we're getting a little bit of feedback um, from somebody. Uh, hey, uh, Adrian. Um, unfortunately, your speakers are are feeding back into your mic, and so when we we talk, we're hearing ourselves. Um, do you have any headphones, maybe, that you could uh, put on, or? Headphones. Yeah. Hold on. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. Um, okay, so I think I'm going to read out one of the first lines. Um, well, not one of the first lines. Oh, well, yeah, one of the the or the last paragraph of chapter one. These are really short chapters. The the, the proslogian is is divided into 26 uh, short chapters, and they range from a very brief paragraph to a few pages at most. They're very short. So I'm going to read the very last paragraph of chapter one uh, because I think it characterizes the entire chapter quite well. Um, so <clears throat> I confess, Lord, and give thanks that you have created in me this image of you so that I may be reminded of you, conceive of you, and love you. But this image is decayed and worn by vices and darkened by the smoke of sins so that it could not 
do that for which it was made without your renewing and reforming it. I do not attempt, Lord, to penetrate to your loftiness, since I in no way compare my understanding to that, but I desire to understand in some way your truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but rather I believe so that I may understand. For this too I believe, that unless I shall have believed, I may not understand. Isaiah 7, 9. Um, what I find interesting about that passage is it, it I think it reveals a little bit of almost uh, presuppositionalism. It, it sounds a little bit like a, a bit of presuppositionalism almost, um, saying that if I do not believe, I cannot understand. Uh, I'm wondering what thought anyone else has. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be on that particular piece or that particular comment, just on the first chapter where he kind of, he, he, he sort of, he, he spends the chapter discussing sort of uh, first sin and, um, and, and how man has fallen. Um, Uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, Gibran. I, I, I arrived just just seconds before you went on air, and I haven't uh, loaded the uh, the pros login. I'm just waiting for it to open. My computer's a little slow right now. Um, uh, uh, I'm just going to have to uh, let someone uh, else uh, speak here until I get this uh, up and running. <laughs> sorry, I'm, yeah. I, I do apologize for being uh, if, if it's it. still good. Oh, do you want to go? Uh, sorry, yeah, sure. It might sound a bit familiar to presuppositionalism, but. It you have to understand things within the Christian narrative. Um, in terms of a human reason and understanding, there's this notion that uh, mankind's natural ability to know the divine was really corrupted uh, during this, during uh, because of a notion like the fall. Thus, man can't really, thus humanity in general, isn't really able to comprehend God and has a bent against that. So, before one can properly learn about God, one has to believe with all his or her heart that such a concept and things are knowable and then from faith you derive your reason as opposed to just having reason that will eventually derive faith. It's basically um, faith and reason, they're not treated as being mutually exclusive uh, events here but they are treated as rather being two different ways to get to the same knowledge and that's essentially um, what has to be built up so you, it's faith through understanding as opposed to arriving at faith by under, via understanding later on. Um, yeah, and, and it seems that his, his belief about God is that um, he cannot fully understand God, um, that no one could fully understand God but God. Um, and so he, he's sort of talking about, in this the first chapter, he kind of just talks about how, how kind of his he kind of talks about all the, the, the lowness of humanity uh, and, and juxtaposes it to the greatness of God um, as, as the beginning chapter. Uh, it's, it's mostly uh, poetical for the most part. The, 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 he, he doesn't get into the argument um, for the most part. Um, he, or at least not in the first chapter, but, but in the second chapter, then he gets into the argument. And um, if no one has any more comments on the first chapter, I think I'm just going to read the second chapter because it's very short, and it essentially lays out the argument. All right, <clears throat> chapter two. This is only a few. This is only a short, a fairly short paragraph. So don't worry. <laughs> I'm not gonna not go on and on. Chapter two: that God truly exists. Therefore, Lord, 
You who give understanding to faith, give to me, insofar as you know it to be advantageous, let me understand that you exist, as we believe, and also that you are that which we believe you to be. And indeed, we believe you to be something than which nothing greater could be conceived. Or is there thus not something of such a nature, since the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? Uh, but surely this same fool, when he hears this very thing that I speak, something then which nothing greater can be conceived, understands that which he hears, and that which he understands is in his understanding, even if he does not understand it to exist. For it is one thing for a thing to be in the understanding, and another to understand a thing to exist. For when a painter conceives beforehand that which he is to make, he certainly has it in his understanding, but he, ha he does not yet understand to exist that which he has not yet made. However, when he has painted it, he both has it in, in the understanding and understands that that which he has now made exists. Therefore, even if the fool is convinced that something then which nothing greater can be conceived, as at least in the understanding, since when he hears this, he understands it, and whatever is understood is in the understanding. And surely that, with, that than which a greater cannot be conceived cannot be in the understanding alone. For if it is even in the understanding alone, it can be conceived to exist in reality also, which is greater. Thus, if that than which a greater cannot be conceived is in the understanding alone, then that than which a greater cannot be conceived itself is that, that than which a greater can be conceived. But surely this cannot be. Therefore, without doubt, something than which a greater cannot be conceived exists, both in understanding and in reality. So, there you go. Basic argument. Um, yeah. Yeah, that 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 actually um, sort of has to be translated into uh, <laughs> a more succinct and modern English because most people are just not going to understand uh, fully half of that. It, it's one of those things where coming in through the ears, um, it doesn't work so well. When you read it, it it it's, it's fine, and even then, it it takes more than one reading to get the sense of it. Uh, so if anyone's uh, just heard this and, and wondering what on earth is the argument, uh, we'll have to we'll have to explain that. Yeah, um, oh, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, we're having a technical problem. Uh, Adrian right now is um, not getting any audio from us, apparently. Okay. That's odd. Here, try leaving the Hangout and then coming right back. Um, here. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'll just type her that message. Okay. <laughs> sorry about this, everybody. Um, my... I, I feel, yeah, I, I, this is the first time I've hosted one of these, so I'm a little bit nervous. Um, okay, uh, the, 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 argument, um, the argument essentially is if, if that thing does not exist, then we can conceive of a greater thing than, than that great thing. I mean, essentially he's arguing this is the greatest thing that can be conceived. Uh, he uses the words, the thing which no greater can be conceived. Um, but he, he also implies that it can be conceived of, and, and as such, I would argue he is arguing that it is the greatest conceivable thing. Uh, so, so he's arguing though that if if the greatest conceivable or the greatest thing that could be conceived exists only in our understanding, only in conception, then there would be something greater than it, and that is the thing that exists also in reality. Um, that. That is that is the argument as laid forth there, um, and he goes into more depth and, and argues for particulars uh, later on, and, and we'll go into that later. But but that's the basic argument I think. Maybe Ozzy wants to uh, to to correct me on that, um, or 
No, no nothing to correct. Uh, there's something I could I could add a little bit here. Um, um, <clears throat> okay, this is called an ontological argument that that uh, Anselm is uh, presenting here, and it, uh, it it's an unusual kind of argument. Uh, first of all, I should say what ontological is. Uh, the word ontological is just a philosophical term that it's it's used to describe a, a sort of a, a chapter within philosophy, a subchapter within metaphysics uh, that, that pertains to that which is, things that are. Um, so sort of used in a sentence, the word uh, ontological just refers to uh, the furniture of reality. To say that uh, such and such a thing is in my ontology is to say that within my view of reality, these kinds of things exist. You know, for instance, are there moral facts? Well, in my ontology, there are moral facts. But if you're a moral nihilist or a moral anti-realist, you might say, no, there are no moral facts. And so that would mean that, that, that in your ontology, in your picture of reality, there's no such thing as a moral fact. Um, uh, so, but I mean, we'd all agree that there are certain kinds of facts, empirical facts, for instance. Okay, those are all part of our common ontology that we all share. So, an ontological argument is an argument that has to do with something that exists. And specifically in this instance, he's trying to argue for God uh, in terms of the concept of existence itself. So, um, so this is a, a, an argument about God's existence that's trying to establish that God exists in terms of the very concept of existence. Um, as opposed to trying to infer God from certain facts uh, within existence, like the fact that there's a cosmos and a universe and all that. That would be a cosmological argument. Um, you know, the fact that there are, are um, that there is morality, for instance, one can use the moral argument to try to infer and conclude that there is a God. Here he's trying to, uh, to, to, to arrive at God by appealing to um, uh, uh, on an argument based uh, on, on existence, and specifically that God exists necessarily, uh, that God is not a contingent being. He's not a being who, who, whose existence depends on any other fact or on any other entity. Uh, so that's, that's why this is called a, an ontological argument. And uh, something else that uh, should be said is, is by way of history is... Um, what he says he's going to do in that 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 preface and that introduction um, uh, prior to laying out the argument which Gibran just read is he says that he wants an argument that's going to show that God exists and exists necessarily and what he means by necessarily he doesn't mean necessarily in a logical sense um, it's not that this is an illogical argument but it, it but he means that he's not merely trying to show that God exists on the assumption of certain premises. You know, if you assume this axiom and this axiom and this axiom, you can infer that there's a God, because one could always call into question those axioms or those assumptions or those premises in the argument. What he wants to do is he wants to show that no, absent any premises, God has to exist. Just necessarily, uh, he, he is the kind of being that must exist. So his existence is, is to be inferred not from anything else, merely from the concept of God. Um, you will be able to, 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 to realize that God necessarily exists. So that's where he's trying to go with that. He's not trying to say, look, grant me this premise, this premise, and this premise, and then I'll show you that God exists. It's not like that. It's not like the cosmological argument, for instance, um, or the moral argument, or any other kind of argument. This is an argument just on the concept of God uh, itself, you will understand that God necessarily has to exist. And uh, the re where history comes into this is uh, kind of in an, uh, an unusual way. Um, there weren't a lot of atheists running around in Anselm's day. <laughs> uh, safe to say there weren't any. 
Um, uh, certainly there weren't going to be any vocal or outspoken atheists. So he's not trying to convince atheists. And there weren't a lot of pagans running around uh, in the 11th century. Uh, this was a, you know, Christianity at this stage uh, in its history was, was, was hegemonic in Europe. There, he wasn't trying to convince those people. So who is he trying to convince with this ontological proof of God? Um, well, he's actually fighting a weird battle. Um, he's, he's sort of uh, addressing a concern that was very much alive uh, in his day, uh, which is a, a, a doctrine that he's combating called the doctrine of created eternal verities. Um, we've often heard people say, you know, God is necessarily logical, the world is logical because God is by his very nature logical and rational. Um, you know, you, there are certain puzzles and objections that people raise in connection with God. You know, could God lift a rock? Could God create a rock so heavy that He couldn't lift it? And you know, one way to get around that is to say, no, well, no, that's that's putting forward a, a kind of contradiction. And God is, um, you know, is 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 a rational and logical concept. That's no objection. Um, but there were people in Anselm's day who thought, no, no, God is omnipotent. He is absolutely sovereign over all of reality. He's not subject to anything. Even the laws of logic, even the rules of logic, even the principle of non-contradiction, rules of inference like modus ponens, these are the artifacts, the creations, expressions of God's will. He created those. He could have created things differently. He could have created a different reality with different logical rules. God is not bound by logic, by, by reason. Now, th this is going to sound odd to some contemporary Christians because they, we tend to think of God as, as sort of uh, uh, lo necessarily logical. Um, uh, but there was a time when people thought, no, God could even, and some Christians to this day think this, that God is absolutely sovereign even over logic. And, um, and that he created what are called the timeless or eternal verities. Um, the rules of logic, for instance. And so this was called at the time the, the doctrine of created eternal verities. The eternal verities, the timeless truths of logic, these are created. They are literally created as much as the earth is created by God. But this had some uh, uh, sort of troubling um, implications. Uh, one of the implications is that, well, if God created the rules of logic, um, the norms of, of reason, well, he could violate them if he wanted to. Well, one of the implications of that is that if he stands outside of logic, there's no, there's nothing barring him from doing something that is, from our standpoint, contradictory. That would not be a limitation on God. You know, you and I can't 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 do anything that is contradictory. I can't, you know, I, I can't be a I can't be a male and not male. I can't be alive and not alive at the same time and in the same respect. But God can do anything. Uh, he stands outside of this. He, he, he created the eternal verities, and he can violate them if he wants. And one of these implications is that if God wanted to, he could cease to exist. And then he could exist if he wanted to, even though he didn't exist for a time. So God could literally, if he wanted to, exist and not exist. He could come and go out of existence. Or he could do uh, both at once. Maybe. Or he could do both at once. And you might say, well, that's incomprehensible. Well, no, it's incomprehensible to you. Um, you live in the universe that he created where there are these created eternal verities, but God is not so limited. He's absolutely sovereign over that. Um, now, this was such an unpalatable uh, implication that God could literally not exist if he wanted to, uh, for Anselm and many uh, others, that it, it was 
they tried to argue against it. And what Anselm was trying to do here is not come up with a proof of God that will prove God so as to convince all the atheists. There weren't any. Uh, or to convince all the pagans to Christianity because there were, well, there were paganistic ideas still around, but there weren't sort of paganism was gone. Uh, there were certainly plenty of heresies uh, around and, and uh, apostasies to, to, to contend with, but they all believed in God of some flavor. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to get around this this problem, this doctrine of created eternal verities. He, he wants to say, no, God can't not exist. And so the ontological argument is intended to address that. And there was there was a fellow by the, uh, at the time by the name of Damien who sort of was the, 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 the chief proponent of this doctrine of created eternal verities. And it was to sort of scotch um, this uh, this argument by people like Damien that he came up with the ontological argument. Uh, now, that being said, you cannot sort of take this argument and say, oh well, it was intended for this particular argument, we don't have this argument, throw it aside. We're still left with the argument. It's still a very, very interesting and, 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 and uh, subtle and, and, and clever argument. Um, so you can't sort of sweep it under the rug uh, as an uh, archaic um, historical uh, 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 dispute. It, it, it is a still a, uh, an argument, and the argument has to be sort of evaluated on its merits, irrespective of irrespective of the context in which it arose. I'm just bringing it up so that people understand why he came up with this. It was to to scotch that particular uh, uh, theory of God uh, and this problem, this uh, unpalatable uh, implication about God. Um, and, and just as an interesting note, he he repeatedly uses the uh, line the fool has said in his heart that God does not exist, which is a favorite of presuppositionalists. Um, but in this case, he's saying that the fool in his heart has said that God could not exist, um, really. Uh, and honestly, though, I would, I would argue, though, from the point of view of someone that believes and created uh, uh, in, in, these, these, in, the, in the idea that God is absolutely sovereign, wouldn't be worried by this argument because God is even sovereign over the logic used in it. Um, and God is sovereign over Himself, and so I, I don't, I don't see how this would be all that troubling, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I think Anselm's view here is uh, he's he's trying to uh, come up with a concept, a conception of God, such that He must necessarily exist, and it doesn't follow from any premises. It's not an inference from any premises. Oh, but it is though. It is an inference and, from the premises that that the principles of logic hold, and that his definition of of God is is. You know, I, I agree. I, I agree. But I'm I'm trying to explain it how how uh, Anselm understood it. He thinks sure. he even says in the introduction that he's trying to. I, I'll have to look up the exact wording where he says it, but where he he says he's trying to come up with a, a an argument here, a, a proof that depends on nothing. Um, that's not a question of having the right premises that someone could potentially deny or doubt. Uh, that's, what, that's what he's trying to get at. He's trying to come up with a conception of God that is undeniable simply by virtue of understanding the concept. Um, and, and this is kind of interesting. The idea is when he says, you know, the fool um, uh, has said, there, has said there's, there's no God, what he's trying to say here is there are people out there who will, will say there's no God, or maybe there's no God. It's conceivable there's no God. I mean, even a Christian um, you know, can, can think that thought. Well, maybe there's no God, and anyone can have these doubts. But what he's trying to say is, no, God properly conceived, correctly construed, anyone who understands the concept of God properly will understand, will recognize that God has to exist. That's where he's going with this, that it... It's not, he's not merely defining 
God is existing. He's going to say, once you understand what God is, and he, and, then he, and he gives a definition of God, and the definition of God doesn't say, oh, and by the way, God exists. It's not part of the definition that God exists. It's not a mere definition here. What he's saying, that, but once you understand the concept of God as something than which no greater thing can be or could be conceived, you will appreciate that God must exist. That, that's where he's, he's going to go with this. Um, exactly. He, I think uh, the person who would, uh, who he would be arguing against would have to bite a pretty big bullet in order to say uh, God can do logically anything because of, he'd have to also sub say that God isn't the greatest uh, being conceivable. Even if, uh, for example, one could say God whisks himself out of existence. But if a God can do that, how is he conceivable? How is he the greatest conceivable being? Even if it follows that God could be could do both simultaneously and is contradictory, it just wouldn't make logical sense of it. And I think even they would want to say that it has some kind of logical uh, weight in terms of uh, the proposition that they're trying to bring up. Um, one 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 way of just just briefly going back to the the, the whole non-contingent thing. Um, the the, when we make an argument, uh, a deductive argument, it's if the truth of its conclusion is contingent. I mean, a, a logically valid deductive argument. The truth of its conclusion is contingent on the truth of our premises. Um, and so, what he's saying here is that he has no premises. Essentially, he's arguing that he has no premises that can be that can be rejected. Um, so that would be what he. Uh, um, yeah, that would be that would kind of be what he's trying to do here by by making it undeniable and necessary is that it is non-contingent. It's contingent on nothing. But I would argue that it is contingent on quite a lot. But that is that's where I think the argument falls apart personally. But um. well, in what he's saying in being independent from all these things is that the definition of God is is God is existence is self-evident from its definition. So if you understand say, I mean, she's basically saying, okay, there's, there is a thing that is greater than can be thought, and then eventually, you know, something exists from that. If you, if you understand what it means, you know, something that's, that's greater, then that has to be God, God being the greatest thing. So it is contingent on the definition, but if you understand that, that greatestness of it, therefore, you have your God, because he has placed what God is within this definition. Yeah, I, w I would agree it's contingent on very little, but it is still contingent on the definition. And I, I personally think the mistake that he makes is in defining greatest, uh, it, which is, he, he defines it as, um, I mean, the title of chapter 5 is that God is whatever it is better to be than not to be, and existing through uh, himself alone, he makes everything else out of nothing. Now, the first half of that's what interests me, that God is whatever it is better to be than not to be. I think this is where he runs headlong into the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, uh, Shapron, I wonder if I could uh, uh, postpone uh, that point a oh, little bit. Uh, uh, the reason, the, here's, here's my reason. Um, I, I don't want to sort of um, venture into sort of objections to it before we sort of fleshed out the, the logic of the argument because I think it's, it is a counterintuitive argument and people dismiss it like, I mean, I, I've had the, the the privilege of teaching this uh, to undergraduate students, and it is it is a very counterintuitive argument, and people really sort of dismiss it and and push it aside very very quickly as oh God, he's just defined 
you know God as existing, right? Or he or he's trying to define God into existence, and that is, I think, a, a very natural way to to understand what he's saying here. But it is absolutely wrong if you read read what he says carefully. That is not what he's saying at all. That's not his argument. And people who raise that objection are not understanding the argument. And and uh, so there's it's it's sufficiently difficult to understand the argument that I don't want to um, bring in what I think are really legitimate uh, objections, which is where, where you're going with this, uh, until people have at least ha had a chance to hear the force of the argument. I, I completely agree with you. I, I apologize. I, I no, don't apologize. <laughs> um, so I, I would like to defer to you because I don't know how I would explain it um, necessarily to someone that thinks it's a weak argument. Defer to I, any of you, really. I, I'm not sure if I can sufficiently explain it to someone that, that doesn't understand it. Okay. Well, I've already had a lot to say, so I'd rather sort of uh, uh, yield the, the the floor to somebody else, and then I'll I'll, I'll throw in my two cents uh, at some point. I'm I'm a little bit afraid of repeating what's already been said because I missed the first ten minutes. Did we in fact read the definition? Of we 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 read it. We we read the the, uh, the 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 definition and all that, but we didn't sort of get into the argument, and we didn't mm -hmm. we didn't stress, for instance, something then which uh, nothing greater can be conceived. What I was talking about, I think, prior to your coming in, was uh, sort some of the historical background, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so I don't think you missed anything uh, of substance uh, there. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. Oh, I was gonna say it's okay if you repeat something that's already been said, um, it's not a big deal. Um, yeah. and, and especially if you say it in a different way, repeating it can be very valuable. Yeah. Okay. All right, well then, um, I'm going to read a couple of textual extracts from my translation and try to give my own understanding of it, because I wrestled with this for a long time, but through several readers. So um, in the beginning of Chapter 2 is where he gets into the meat of the argument, and um, my translation has him starting out as... Um, you who grant understanding to faith, grant that insofar as you know it's useful for me. I may understand that you exist as we believe you exist, and that you are what we believe you to be. So I think here he's putting, he's saying, you know, God, I'm going to define you, grant that you are going to be what I define you to be. So that's how he's setting that up. And then he says, now we believe that you are something than which nothing greater can be thought. And that's the definition right there. So sort of putting God as like the upper limit on something. You know, say um, there's got to be a greatest something, like there's a tallest tower or a strongest person or a biggest planet or something like that. But we're talking about the greatest thing in all of existence and then something which you can't conceive of as any greater. So he goes on to do that in there. So, uh, But now he's saying um, further down in the chapter... He talks about the fool's objection to, oh, okay, well, you're just thinking about this. This doesn't necessarily prove its existence. Um, but then he says, even the fool must admit that something than which nothing greater can be thought exists at least in his understanding, since he understands this when he hears it, and whatever is understood exists in the understanding. So he set the groundwork for the basis of, okay, if you're thinking about this, then it exists at least up here, because you intellectually intellectually understood it. And then he goes on, and surely that then which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist only in the understanding. For if it exists only in the understanding, it can be thought to exist in reality as well, which is greater. So if something exists in your understanding, he's positing reality as, again, as the greater thing than just thinking it. So if you've thought it, then there has to be something greater in existence as well. So then 
So if that then which a greater cannot be thought exists only in the understanding, then the very thing than which a greater cannot be thought is something than which a greater can be thought. That is clearly impossible. Therefore, there is no doubt that something that which a greater cannot be thought exists both in the understanding and in reality. So that's his definitional argument right there. If it depends on just being able to conceive of that idea of greater. So whatever this greatest, greater than can be thought is, thoughts about it. Yeah, I wonder if I could add a little to that, Adrian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's an argument with a lot of moving parts. Um, mm -hmm. The the idea is okay. Like you know, I'm I'm Here's one way to think about this. It's a challenge. It's a it's a think of it as a dare. Okay. I, I when I'm trying to explain this to, to students, I often found it helped to sort of cash it out as a dare. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to be on Selma. I'm going to say, I dare you to think of the following thing. Try to think of something than which no greater thing can be thought, or no greater thing can be conceived. I'm not asking you to think of the greatest thing you can think of. I'm th asking you, because that might just be a function of your, you know, like, you know, who knows, Gibran might be able to think of something really great, and Adrian might be able to think of something really great, and Eddie might be able to think of something uh, great, and some of them ha might have uh, better powers of imagination than others. Uh, but those will all be different things. Um, but I'm asking you to conceive of something than which no greater thing could be conceived at all. Think of that, whatever that is. Now, you don't know what that is. That's kind of an open-ended definition, right? It's like saying, think about the, the, you know, the, 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 think about the fattest man. Well, you don't know how much the fattest man weighs, but you can still conceive of what the fattest man means. You know what, the, what it means to be the fattest man. It means that there's no, no man fatter. Okay? No other person is, is as fat as the fattest man. Whoever the fattest man is, however much he weighs, whatever he looks like. I'm asking you to think of something than which no greater thing can be conceived, or something than which no greater thing can be thought, conceived or thought, the same thing. Can, now, can I, I want to I make one small note here. Um, yeah, in your example, ahead. you say the fattest man. What we're actually asking for is not the example of the greatest thing that has been conceived, but the greatest thing that could possibly be conceived. Could be, uh, right. So we're asking to, to, to reach through the limit to the limit of conception and, and find something that, that any that we cannot possibly conceive anything greater than. That's that is the that is the it's not that we can, sorry, but we could never. That's that's more the challenge. Right. Subtle right. distinction. Yeah. No, it's an important distinction. Um, and that's sort of what I was alluding to when I said, you know, what Gibran can conceive of and, and what Adrian and, and Eddie can conceive of, what I can conceive of, those could all be very different things. Very, you know, They might be magnificent things, but we're trying to get beyond that even. We're trying to get to something then which no, gr no greater thing can be or could be conceived. Now, so think of it as a challenge. Try to think of that thing. Think about what that thing would be, the greatest thing, not just the greatest thing that happens to be, but something then which no greater thing could be. Well, you know, I think, well... Okay, what about it? Well, what, what would that be like? Well, it would be, it would be, it would be, well, it would be powerful. Well, how powerful would it be? Well, presumably it would be all-powerful. Um, it would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Yes, it, it would be maximally good. It would be omnibenevolent. What else would it be? It, well, it would, it would, it, you know, it would be, um, uh, it would be all-knowledgeable. It would, it would know everything. It would be omniscient. I mean, you could add all sort of this, the traditional omni-attributes of, of, uh, of the God of the, of the uh, 
Abrahamic religions, you know. Um, you could just keep piling in all of these great making qualities into this definition and you might say, well, how do I know that it, such a thing exists? Well, no, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you to adjudicate on whether it exists. I'm asking you to try to think of it. It's an open question whether or not this thing exists at this stage. It's a challenge. I'm daring you to try to think this thing through. Try to think of what that would be. And you keep thinking and you keep thinking and you keep piling on these fantastic attributes. And then at some point he says, now, does that thing exist? And you say, well, no, not, not necessarily. Well, where, doesn't it exist in your mind? Yes. Okay, it exists in your mind. It exists in your thought. It exists in your imagination. Do you think that's the greatest thing you can think of? Do um, you think you've arrived at it? Do you think you have you have arrived? You've, you think you've met my challenge? And if you think, yeah, 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 I thought of the you know the, you know the, the most kick-ass thing I can think of, uh, and, and and you think it doesn't exist? Think again. What if that thing existed? Wouldn't that be greater still than the thing that's merely in your imagination? Oh, yeah. Right. Existence is a necessary property of something than which no greater thing can be conceived. Because if you think it's something that only resides in your mind or in your imagination, then it is not something than which no greater thing can be conceived. You just have to conceive of it as existing and suddenly you'll realize, oh yeah, if it had existence it would be greater still. You cannot satisfy the challenge, you cannot answer the dare without positing that existence is a property or an attribute of this thing. So think of it as an open-ended definition. He's not demanding that you assume that it's, it's existing. It is not begging that question. He is simply saying, think of something than which no greater thing can be thought or no greater thing can be conceived. And, and as soon as you, you, you say, as the fool does, oh yeah, but that can just exist in my imagination, he'll say, haha, you have not succeeded. You have not gone far enough in your imagining. Keep imagining. Imagine a little more. What's, you, just imagine that it exists and you'll see that would it not be greater? Is not something that exists uh, in reality not greater than something that exists merely in the mind? Can I, can so I also have a way of demonstrating that? Um, uh, through the definition of him being uh, perfectly good, not, not the definition of, but the consequence of him being perfectly good, one would certainly say that a good thing that exists is greater than a good thing that does not exist. Um, and as such, we can get to it because we know that God, because it is better to be good than not good, um, clearly God must exist. That, I think that that's, that's the part that that, 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 that is how I would get to it personally if I'm making this argument. Right, right. That's, that's, that's excellent. And the fact that it's a better thing is important because we're talking about something great. We're talking about, you know, there's a, there's a, a normative uh, dimension here, uh, something being better. Um, so you're, you're trying to think of the best thing. Uh, and well, the I mean, this is a wonderful thing it, this, that you're imagining. Would it not be a wonderful and wondrous thing? Well, wouldn't it be more wonderful and wondrous if it existed? And so he's asking you to to to, to think of this thing that, uh, and see what, if anything, satisfies this definition. And and properly conceived, you will realize that existence would be a property of that thing. Uh, it would exist necessarily. And so he hasn't, as as he sees it. He has not pointed to some fact in the in reality or in the world, uh, and and shown well. You know, if you couple this premise and this premise, if you you know take this fact and this fact, and you reach you make this inference, you'll arrive at the conclusion that God exists. He's saying no, no, no. The concept of God it, itself, properly understood, properly conceived, exists. And and it's sort of there's an old dictum that uh, Francis Bacon you know said much much later on in you know in history uh, that. 
no truth can be told so as to be properly conceived and not be believed. Sort of Anselm is sort of thinking along those lines. That if you understand this concept properly, you will have to see that God necessarily would exist. If not, you're just a fool. You're merely saying that you can imagine this wondrous thing, uh, that it's something than which no greater thing can be conceived, but you haven't actually gotten that far um, as actually thinking the thing that he's asking you to think. So could it be said that he's not trying to argue it or prove it, so to say, he's merely describing that which is already there? Yeah, That's right. That's right. With his definition, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he thinks it follows strictly from the definition. And the definition, what's ingenious about this is the definition is open-ended. It is often said, I've, I've heard many, many atheists and uh, agnostics and, and, and critics of this argument say, oh, well, he's just trying to, you know, smuggle existence into the definition. The, the existence is not part of this definition. It's completely open-ended. It's it, presented as a challenge. Go ahead, try to think of this, and you will see that as... If you think this thing is wonderful and great that you've conceived of, and then you still say, oh, yeah, but maybe it doesn't exist, well, it's not the greatest thing, is it? You haven't got there, have you? And, Keep and, going. And also, he's not really just taking a concept and saying, bam, existence. And what he's – like uh, one popular example uh, I'm going to just steal from a, a popular YouTuber um, – the and I'm going to reference him by name because he actually does have a pretty interesting channel, the Messianic Manic. Uh, uh, he oh yeah, I know him. He yeah. uses uh, the concept of a real acorn, and he says it's like a unicorn, except it has the property of being real. Well, there's nothing about unicornness that garners us realness. In that situation, yes, you are proper. You are attaching the property and uh, smuggling into the definition, but. When it comes to, but the concept of a unicorn is very closed. There's nothing about that particular concept that leads us to realness. However, there is something about the concept of greatness that leads us to realness. So that's where the argument isn't just defining something. Right, right. Yeah. At no point in this argument is existence smuggled in as some hidden premise. Um, or, or merely defined into existence. There, he's not defining God into existence, and he's not defining God as existing. He's saying, if you understand the concept of something than which no greater thing can be conceived, you will understand that not only is it omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, you know, whatever attributes you, you, you want that would be make it great, it would also have to exist, because if it didn't exist, it wouldn't be quite so great, would it? And what you are challenged to do, what you are tasked to do, is imagine something than which no greater thing can be or could be conceived. Uh, it's really quite ingenious. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and thus all the properties of God follow from that, that greatness upon which everything else turns. Yeah. Oh, and that's a really good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, did you want to say more about that, Adrian, or or not? Um, well, that's going that's going to get into the 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 next chapters because um, I think he has a whole section in between that about that you know you can't think God out of existence and how the fool can say oh God doesn't exist except when God does. But um, all of the qualities in which Ansem begins to give to God by chapter five and forward follow on from the idea that. You know, God is the greatest thing, something that which can be um, truth, uh, just, truthful, happy, whatever it is better to be than not to be. That all follows from that right? mm. definition. Yeah. I mean, for 
uh, for someone who's, uh, I, I mean, I'm an atheist, by the way. Um, I don't know, Adrian, I don't know if you know anything about me. I, I'm an atheist. I'm not. That's okay. <laughs> uh, that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, but, I mean, uh, you know, uh, for, from the standpoint of, of someone who is uh, a theist or, you know, uh, specifically a Christian, mm -hmm. I mean, this is, a, this is a really great definition because what you get, you, you get all the great attributes that are traditionally associated with God. Mm -hmm. You get them for free. Exactly. You don't have to run the scripture. At, at, you know, it's not like the cosmological argument. With the cosmological argument or the teleological argument, you know, you can prove some maybe some deistic conception of God, but then you're stuck. Now you've got to come up with a bunch of auxiliary arguments to get from that deistic conception of God you know, based on the teleological argument or the cosmological argument, to, to get to the sp specifically the God of the of the Abrahamic religions. But here, you get it all for free. It all comes just neatly bundled up in the concept of something than which no greater thing can be conceived. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I've always said this is my favorite uh, proof of God. <laughs> it's it is the strongest. It is the most ingenious, and it's the it's. It's subtle. It's very easy to misunderstand, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but properly understood, it is actually not quite so easy to dismiss. People have worked really hard to to unpack this argument and understand what what does it prove and what doesn't it prove. What does it show? And what's a good objection? What's a bad objection? And mm -hmm. it's uh, I mean the argument was taken up later by Descartes in his um, Meditations on First Philosophy, that, that the, the, the famous uh, work where he comes up with the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am argument. Uh, he has in there his own version of the ontological argument. Um, so if you're not familiar with the ontological argument and you read Descartes, you're not going to understand a big chunk of, of what he's arguing in that work unless you understand the ontological argument here. Um, and I mean, it's... Yeah, go ahead. Please go also ahead. Also from a historical standpoint, um, the term ontological argument is later given to... Uh, uh, what Anselm was trying to do here. I think it was given by uh, Immanuel Kant, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's right or not, but I think that's right, I, because I when I think, sort of reading back, yeah, I don't think I remember reading the expression ontological argument before I read Kant. Mm. It's not in Hume. I, one, one thing <sighs> yeah. that I'd like to know, um, I, I agree with you, Ozzy, that this is by far the best definition, one of the best definitions of God, and it's one of the arguments that gets you the most um, for it. One of the things that I don't think it gets you, that he actually argues for, is the Trinity. Um, he argues that, that God has no parts, and then he argues for the Trinity two pages later. Yeah. And that is ver verging on incoherent, and I, I, I feel that his argument for the Trinity is easily the least intelligible part of this book, and I honestly don't think it is well-constructed. Okay, I, I agree that there's a problem with the argument there, but uh, what, what he says there, but the be careful with the, the idea of parts, because he's arguing for divine simplicity in this, uh, that, um, that God is a kind of unity. Um, but the doctrine of the Trinity does not say that God has parts, right? God is one being. There are three persons uh, in, in, in one being. Uh, but they're not three parts of one being. Yeah, I no, mean it's I, kind I, of. I mean it's counter. It's counterintuitive, but it. But the the idea that God has parts is a heresy. Well, I would. I, I guess the, the 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 point that I would be making is that the metaphysical picture of God presented does not allow for there to be parts in the way that we conceive of them, and so persons, I would argue, is the closest thing you could get to parts in that sense. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we think of persons as as distinct uh, yeah. things, uh, but. Yeah, it it's not, it doesn't logically follow that. Uh, that no, it couldn't, it couldn't exist in one being. I'm well, you know that. Yeah, I know, I know we agree on that. Yeah. I'm actually not sure. Sorry. Oh, oh, go on. 
I'm actually just a thought occurred to me. I'm not sure why he didn't argue um, perception the way he did for some of the other qualities to explain away the contradictions between being both merciful and impassable. You know, we perceive God as this way, but really God is not actually being affected to it. So I'm not sure why he didn't argue, um, well, the, the Trinity, we, we perceive these different aspects mm. of the one God. You know, in that case, it is our perception which divides God into parts rather than God actually being part. It is from our perspective that he is three persons, but not from his. He could have argued that as well. But I think that that would kind of defeat the... the the Trinity to some extent. Yeah, that's not the doctrine of the Trinity, though. The Trinity isn't the uh, doctrine of the mm -hmm. Trinity. I mean, it's complicated, and there's some disagreements on what the Trinity what is entailed here. I mean, it is, a, after all, a, a mystery um, by description. But uh, the Trinity is not thought of as an illusion, mm -hmm. um, a, sort of a, a, a misperception on our behalf, or on our on our part. But but there really are three persons, right? That that's supposed to be sort of a, it's an ontological claim. There, you know, God is one being, and, uh, but it is one being that, that has three persons, um, but they're not parts. They don't make up the being. Um, it, it's very hard to make sense of the idea, I, I admit, but, uh, but it, Am I getting you right, Adrian? Am I mischaracterizing what you were saying? saying no, there? I think I think I, I, I see what you're saying, and maybe I had simply just misunderstood what he was talking about in terms of our perception relating back to the merciful and impassable. Um, I guess does it then relate back to it is better to be this way in the Trinity than not to be? I mean, sort of tying back into the usually, usually the Trinity yeah. among usually the Trinity among theologians is regarded as a mystery, but those who accept the Trinity don't usually make a separate naturalistic uh, argument for it. Uh, I mean, an argument from natural theology, which is basically deducing God just from pure reason. They take it as more of a revealed truth, something that's said, right. in, the, something that's said in the Bible or in Christian tradition, and even though we don't comprehend it, we should uh, still believe it because we have good theological reasons so the proof of God comes first, and then uh, then you might get proofs of Christianity later with some Christological evidences, and then you can make a, uh, an argument for the Trinity. Right, right. So you cannot reason your way to the Trinity. It's a piece of revealed uh, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, knowledge. It's not something that you can just sort of figure out a priori mm -hmm. by, you know, it, it's not in, inherent in the concept of God that, that he is a Trinity. Okay, so he's actually not including this in his ontological definition. Well, I because the so. ontological definition proceeds from grant that you are as we understand you. I mean, that yeah. has to be yeah. encompassed in that. Yeah, that's he true. Comes, he, makes, he makes the argument for it in chapter 23, where he argues for the Trinity. Um, and and it, is, it, it is not a good... I mean, I don't think it's a particularly well-constructed argument. I think he's kind of grasping at straws, to be honest. Um... But but again, why? I well okay. So he this is okay. This is the part I think he at some point he starts equivocating God to concepts like goodness, and and this is after he's already done started to do that, and and he does that a lot in this argument. So he says like um, it. Well, I, 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 I kind of don't want to read too much of it, um, but I can I can just read the... It's a, I don't want to... Go ahead and read it. It's, it's okay. Yeah, uh, it's, right. None of the chapters are long, I mean. Um, okay, this is chapter 23. 
Uh, this is this good is you, God the Father. This is your word, that is, your Son. And indeed, it cannot be other than what you are, or something greater or less than you, to be in the word by which you utter yourself, since your word is as true, in a way, as you are true. Uh, and therefore, it is truth itself, just as you are, none other than you. Uh, this sentence kind of reveals what I'm talking about. He says, God is truth itself. I mean, that we're, we're getting into the sort of murky waters of... Of, of equivocating God to all these concepts. Um, and, and I think that's that's verges on incoherence. Um, and he says, And you are so simple that nothing can be begotten from you other than that which you are. Uh, this itself is love, one in common to you and to your Son. That is the Holy Spirit proceeding from both. For the same love is not unequal to you or to your Son, since you love yourself and him, and he loves you and himself as much as you and he exist. Nor is it that which is not different from you and from him, uh, him other than you and then him, nor can any other thing pr pr proceed from supreme simplicity than that which is what it proceeds from. Moreover, that which each single one is, is at the same time what the Holy Trinity, the whole Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, since each single one is not different from the supreme simple unit and the supreme unified simplicity, which can neither be multiplied nor be now this and now that. And this is what I'm talking about. I mean, he literally says they're the same thing, which is to say that they're identical. And and once he's done that, it means that the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all different names for the same entity. That is, I think, where he, he, he missteps, but I, I could be misreading that. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I think he's... He... he well, I heard your earlier objection where you said, um, for if your word is as true as you are truthful. And what I, what I think I hear you objecting to is he's, he's using a, a vacuous definition, if you will. You know, this is true because God is true and so on and so forth. But I think the truthfulness of the word harkens back to the qualities that God possesses because God is the thing of which nothing greater can be thought. That is to say, it is better to be truthful than not truthful. Therefore, God is true. Therefore, this is true. No, I, I agree with that. What he okay. says, though, is as you are true, which is to mm -hmm. equivocate God with the concept of truth. That's my problem. I mean, I certainly think that, that I mean, if this God exists, then, then this God would always speak the truth. But, mm -hmm. but speaking the truth is not the same thing as being the truth. This it is, says truthful in my translation. I wonder yeah. if this is... We have different ones here. He, he says, as you are true. I mean, he might be using it in a poetic sense, um, and I may be reading too much into it because of that. But he does equivocate a lot. He, he does say things like, God is the very good, or God is the life. And that, I think, is where he, he, he falls into the, the Euthyphro dilemma. And I mean, I think he falls into it even before then, but, but I, I, we don't want to get too off track here, sorry. Uh, if, if anyone feels that we can talk about how the argument is, is robust more, I think we should do that before going into objections. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, there's, a, there's an objection that, that comes up a lot that is sort of um, gets a little confused. And, and actually, it's an, an argument that, that you'll hear a lot. Um, for instance, someone will say something like, okay, Anselm, you think you've got such a hot definition here? That um, How about this? There is some bridge um, 
greater than which no greater bridge can be conceived. Now, so let's imagine such a bridge. Oh, the bridge is, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, you know, you know, a hundred cars can, can drive across it at the same time. That's how wide it is, you know. It's, uh, how, how, how long is this bridge? Oh, it, 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 it goes all the way around the circumference of the earth, you know. Um, you know, it's made out of, you know, diamond or something like that. It's, it's virtually indestructible. You can, you can imagine a, a, an absolutely fantastic bridge. Now, does such a bridge exist? So that's, that's one uh, argument uh, that you could make, right? I mean, it seems to me we could prove the existence of all kinds of things this way, because wouldn't it be greater if such a bridge existed than if it didn't exist? Well, therefore, it must exist, right? And a lot of people have made this kind of argument. In fact, uh, one of um, Anselm's contemporaries, a fellow by the name of Gonolo, um, came up with the same objection. He said there... He, he challenged him and said, well, couldn't there just as easily be an island than which no greater island can be thought or conceived? Does that prove the existence of such an island? Surely not. So it was intended to be a kind of reductio ad absurdum. It seems, you know, you could prove the existence of anything. Um, because wouldn't it always be better if you had any great thing? Wouldn't it be better if that great thing also had the property of existing? Wouldn't that make it greater still? Uh, and so you you know, to satisfy the, the, the challenge, you have to imagine the thing in question as existing. So this was another objection that, that, that is raised a lot, and it was raised in his day, and, and he had an answer uh, for that. But one of the sort of the, the, the answers to, to this is, um, is um, when you're talking about um, a bridge like that, um, you can always imagine something better about it. You can always imagine it being wider, bigger, stronger, uh, longer, more beautiful, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, smoother, flatter, you know, whatever property. You can always keep magnifying and imagining more, greater and greater uh, and greater things. Um, but in the case of when you're, imagine, you're trying to um, imagine something then which no greater thing at all can be conceived, what you're, you're being challenged there is to imagine the greatest thing of all across all domains. In other words, you're not restricting it to bridges or islands or donuts or you know whatever it is. You know you can imagine you know a donut than which no greater donut can be conceived. I mean, whenever you specify something than which no greater donut or bridge or you know whatever can be conceived, you you are the domain of inquiry here is is constrained. You're thinking just about bridges or donuts or or, or islands or whatever. But you can always imagine something greater than that entirely. I mean, you know, th there's no limit there. But when you're talking about greatness itself, when you're talking about all things, the, the domain is unrestricted. He, what then it's a different thing because he, what he's saying is, I'm ask, I'm challenging you to imagine something than which no greater thing of any kind, bridges, islands, whatever you think is great, that thing that would have to exist for it to be something than which no greater thing could, could be, um, uh, can be conceived. Um, and so there's no, there's no restriction on the domain here. There's no restriction on the type of thing that you're being asked to imagine. Um, and that makes this sui generis, a case all by itself, unique. There, this, is, this is not like bridges and, you know, um, and, and all these other things. There, there can only be one of these things. This is, this is a one-of-a-kind thing, this challenge. Um, uh, is unrestricted. I'm asking you, I'm, I'm daring you to think of something 
and you can think of anything. You, you know, if you want to think that it's a bridge, that's fine. If you want to think it's an island, that's fine. But keep going. You'll find out that it's not a bridge. It's not an island. You're going to find out that it's omniscient. You're going to discover that it would have to be omnipotent. That it would have to be, you know, all these omni attributes and whatever else you want. Right? As my wife likes to say, it would have to be chocolatey, because you know, um, you know, and on and on and on. Um, can I so, can I add one thing though? Um, yeah. Because he's arguing uh, from the concept of divine simplicity. The reason that the bridge doesn't make sense is you can always add attributes to the bridge, but God only has one attribute, and that is greatness itself. Um, and as such, he's talking about something fundamentally different from a bridge. I mean, you would even have to, you would have to, before you could even begin to talk about the greatest possible bridge, you'd have to define what makes a bridge great. Um, right. And he, I mean, that's that's a very, that's an open-ended topic. But in this case, he's talking about greatness itself, um, not yeah, the yeah. particular thing. That's right, and and but but greatness itself, as applied to anything and all things, there's no there's no there's no circumscribing the, the the set of things you can imagine. Go ahead, imagine any and all things, right? And then you'll find you end up with God, um, properly conceived. Yeah, that's 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 very good. Um, that is that is a that is a complaint I hear very commonly from atheists. Um, and I, I, before I read Proslogion, I, I wasn't uh, well equipped enough to argue against it. Um, but thank you, I appreciate that. So um, this, this, I think actually the last point I made kind of brings maybe maybe is beginning to bring us into the objections to the argument. Um, I, I, we're, sure. we're maybe about an hour or so in, and I think it's I, maybe we can uh, transition into that now. So um, I mean. I think the, the, the major objection um, actually comes back to the previous discussions we were having, uh, which is the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, and as I said earlier, I, I think he runs headlong into the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, and, and this is because he's talking about greatness itself, and so he presupposes this conception of good, um, as if we already know what good implies. And then he seeks to describe the thing that defines the good, while using a definition of the good that he believes already exists. Um, and I, I think that is hopelessly circular. Um, and that is that is my problem with the argument. I think in a lot of ways he makes some very interesting points in this. Um, but but that is, I think, where it runs afoul, is is what, I mean, why why should, I mean, here's, here's the complaint that I have. Why should I accept the, the 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 biblical interpretation of good is good even I mean there, there are a number of problems but but I think that's the broadest problem with it um, I wonder what you all think well uh, one difficulty here is he, he's talking about greatness right something than which no greater thing can be conceived okay but there's no you know there's no un, there's no even a provisional definition of what uh, a great making property is. Right. I mean, I I tossed out that you know facetiously this you know the word chocolatey. Um, you know, why isn't chocolatey uh, being chocolatey a great making property? You know, um, my wife actually volunteered that one. You know, like I was mm -hmm. explaining this to her, and I was sort of listing all of the the omni attributes and and you know virtuous and 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 honest and true and you know all these other things that would be great making properties. And she said, well, what about chocolatey? Don't forget chocolatey. You know. Um, and um, now, I mean, that's facetious, of course, but the idea is without a, 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 a proper definition or conception of what we mean by a great making property, we don't know that we're sort of heading in the, in, in the, the right direction here. Um, and 
and and where this matters, and now I'm taking it in a slightly different direction, um, Jiran, is, is is existence is something existing necessarily a great making property? Yeah, and um, and, I, and I I think the justification is that if it is something that is good, it is better that it exists, but we don't know if it is something good or not without that independent definition of good. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and so I think that argument just kind of falls flat. Because yeah, well, that's where it hooks right up with what you were just saying. Um, um, it, in terms of existence uh, being better to have than not uh, better to have, I think we should look at to the nature of what we're trying to espouse. For example, um, two... Uh, Two uh, examples we I'm just going to bring up are Batman and the Joker because uh, they're pretty awesome characters. Now, a real-life Batman, one who can fight crime, would be much more awesome, I think we'd all agree, in terms of him actually being able to do what Batman does. He'd actually be able to go out, fight crime, take in bad guys, um, uh, provide awesome, uh, do a lot of stuff that we would just find rather interesting and just awesome. Now, however, he and it would help exemplify me just one on. However, let's take the Joker. If there was a real-life Joker who was running around causing trouble and destruction, from our point of view, that would be bad. He's a psychopath who's just causing all kinds of chaos that we just don't want. However, but when we think about what does it mean to be a Joker, isn't that what we want out of a Joker? Someone who is doing all these things? If we're not, then we're not exemplifying what it is to be, uh, to be the Joker itself. Now, with God, we might. Uh, now, with God, if we uh, exemplify His existence as being that great making property, if one is to conceive of anything, of even if our conceptions from our imaginations are imperfect, it would also, even if uh, that were the case, that it wouldn't be the definition for our definitions to be greater than in terms of their nature, they would have to exist than just be in our minds. So from what it means to be God, which is the notion of having being the greatness itself, the existence or the ontology would also have to follow from what we have. And I think that's where we might hook in uh, existence as a, as part of part and parcel with what it is to be uh, the greatest conceivable being. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But but again, we're we're presupposing we have a coherent conception of good. I mean, when we talk about characters like Batman being good, we're referencing a conception of good. Um, and in this case, we're referencing a conception of good to define God that we then define as being God. I mean, that is that's where it gets even worse. Is he then defines God as being? I mean, he he then defines the good in terms of God. I mean, he really does not. He, he he's, he's shamelessly running into the Uthafro dilemma. I think. I think, he's, well, I think he, he does that after though, right? So yeah, I think. He he does, I don't think it's he's defining that as God, but rather he's. Uh, but what he's trying to do is say what we mean by God is what essentially you mean by. By that, he's trying to give them both equal identity. Yeah, here's here's one way to think of this that might sort of get out of that problem. Um, if uh, if you grant him the argument, um, the ontological argument, um, you know, here's an objection that someone might say, well, who cares? You know, what if such a thing had to exist? Well, it, it, if such a thing exists, it should certainly matter. Uh, you should certainly get on your knees and worship it. I mean, if if I thought that thing existed, if the something in which no greater thing can be conceived um, existed, um, 
I would worship that thing. What else could be more worthy of worship than that? I mean, you know, it is, you know, that that is obviously an object of worship. Um, it should be an object of worship, right? Um, so that would that thing would be maximally good, right? Now, I there is that problem that he sort of smuggled the concept of goodness into the idea of greatness. I think, right? Because yeah, you know, because he defines it as that which is better than. The better to have than not to have. That's right, and that's that's where the problem is. It's better to have it than than not have it. Well, what makes it better? Well, that there's something good about it, right? So that's where the difficulty is. But it seems to me that um, if you if you just started with some kind of uh, provisional tentative conception, and then you got to this conclusion, then you would have to say, okay, well, given that um, conception that that I uh, of goodness that I had that that got the argument uh, moving to begin with, mm -hmm. I would then have to acknowledge that that thing would be absolutely good, would be would be goodness. Um, mm -hmm. And then you could then go back and say, okay, well, now I, now I now have a clear definition of what goodness is. Um, so the idea is you start with a kind of provisional tentative definition and you, you, you get to this conclusion and then you realize, oh, I've, I've just firmed up my conception of goodness. Uh, I, I understand what perfect goodness is uh, now. Uh, it is something in which no greater uh, thing can be conceived. Um, now, I don't think that's actually a more informative definition of goodness, though. Um, but I think Ansem would have thought it was. Um, but I don't think it is. I, 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 you it's, know. Not even, it's not even a definition of goodness. It's a definition of the ultimate good. And in, in, yeah. in that respect, I absolutely agree that it serves that purpose perfectly fine. But it does not provide a definition of good, which is an entire argument rests on. Sorry, Adrian, you wanted to say something. Um, well, I was just thinking about chapter 25, because I was pondering that myself, you know, what is goodness? He, and at the very end of the chapter, he lists um, sort of uh, what great goods are those for who enjoy their good. And um, he lists things like beauty, swiftness and strength, and long and healthy life, and drunkenness, and salvation and wisdom, and so on and so forth, like all of these things are good, which um, seems to me to say, you know, whatever you are going to think about is good, that's good. You know, that which gives you pleasure or life or, or things like that, that's the good, which means it's dependent, <coughs> excuse me, on the people who are experiencing this, which goes back to the fact that um, which he states in the very beginning of chapter two that we are made in the image of God, that that um, so that we we are like you, there, and you are encompassed in how we understand you. So, what is good to us? That is that is your good. Is yeah, I, I got the impression that what he was talking about in that chapter was um, his vision of heaven, but um, I could be wrong. Um, well, that was an initial thought. But it does also seem to be he does does describe many things that he thinks of as good and and actually that I think that's an interesting point. But that would lead to the problem that anyone's conception of God of of the ultimate being therefore must exist. Um, and so we've we've run into another problem. We now have contradictory existing beings. Okay, but no, I don't th I don't think that's that that objection is going to work because I, I think Anselm is content uh, here to understand that your conception uh, of God has to be. Approximate, right? Where we, you know, we cannot actually apprehend God as He is, right? That's sort of at the very beginning, right? So all we've got is some vague sense, whatever sense we have of goodness. You know, you might, you might have all kinds of conceptions of goodness, and you, you might be, you know, your, your, um, 
your, your sort of sense of right and wrong and good and bad and, and great and, and not great might not be properly calibrated. <laughs> well, uh, but the point is it's, going, it's still going to get you to this conclusion. I, I actually disagree. I, I have a conception. Okay. I've got a, a, I can, I'm going to conceive of a type of goodness that would not lead me to this conclusion. And th this is one that I've, I've heard some people espouse, so it's not totally unrealistic. So let's, let's assume the utilitarian definition of good. Good is what leads to happiness, and bad is what leads to suffering. Now, let's also assume that happiness is merely the absence of suffering. So then the ultimate good would be that thing which creates no suffering, which means that the good would have to be something that, that would be a, a universe that does not exist at all, to have any suffering in it. So in this case, I, would, I could argue that, that then God would be better off not existing and not creating anything. Um, and so I don't think that any conception of good necessarily leads you to this. Uh, only a positive conception of good. A conception of good that admits that good is something in and of itself, which is what I have. No, you're well, right. If, well, if you... I think you could also argue against that by arguing against the utilitarian definition by saying suffering is actually a good thing in terms of how it might make you grow, advance, uh, push on as a human being. For example, I could look to the sufferings in my life that had a positive experience on me, and I could say I would never trade in. I would always imagine a life where I went through that suffering so I could become a better person. Now, it's not saying that all forms of suffering are, in fact, good, but in terms of saying that suffering is helpful, then yes, God might see fit to create some suffering if it gets him, uh, if it gets him the ultimate uh, good of his creation. One yeah, but no, that's the problem, is that, that you're missing the point of the definition. Uh, you're, you're, you're trying to apply the, the Christian definition of good. Um, and I, I agree, I'm, I'm probably, my definition of good is probably closer to the Christian one than to this kind of utilitarian one. But the definition of good essentially becomes merely that which creates no suffering. The ultimate good is that which creates no suffering. So any suffering created is automatically by that defini definition not good. Um, now, there's, there's a problem with this, and that is, is the good the experience of the absence of suffering or merely the absence of suffering? And this is a more complicated issue, but if you assume it is just the absence of suffering and not the experience of the absence of suffering, then, then the ultimate good would be a universe that does not exist. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a one complication, one wrinkle in this, and that is that uh, you're talking about the moral good there. Um, but when he's talking about greatness, he he's actually talking about a concept that's even larger than than the moral good. He's he's talking about something being better. What you know, wouldn't it be better if God were uh, omnipotent than if he were almost omnipotent? Wouldn't it be better if he were omniscient than almost omniscient? Yeah. Right. And the, now the the idea is you can have a normative concept like better. Uh, or greater that uh, has goodness subsumed under it but but is not exhausted by the concept of moral goodness now of course you're gonna have to make a case for that um, well, I, can, I, can I make my case against that 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 kind of concept because I, yeah. I think the problem here is that that if that is the case then we can say that weakness is greater than strength insofar as that it is weaker so the only way we can root it all in the good I, I think the only way to do it is to really root it all in the good and to say that, that ultimately what is better what is better to have than not to have is ultimately what is good not what is greater because something may be greater that is lesser in, in its ability to create good something may be, may be less good and in that sense it is greater than that which is good insofar as that it is more bad. I mean, that I think is the problem there. And he he's trying to say that it, all of these things follow from our conception of. I mean, I would argue our conception of goodness. I think that that's the better argument to be made. I I agree. I I think that see part of the difficulty here is that whenever you say something is good or better, uh, I, we're always imagining 
Well, good or for what? Gooder, <laughs> good or better for what purposes? And uh, for whom is it better uh, or good? Um, so you always have to say, you know, something is better in a certain respect. You have to say um, uh, that something is better um, for, for certain to a certain end or to certain purposes. Uh, and um, uh, from the from the standpoint or the from the standpoint of the interests of of some being. Uh, and I don't know how he's going to be able to sort of cash out this concept of, of, of goodness or, or better or greater without uh, um, sort of smuggling in the concept of God again because he wants to say that he's going to want to say um, that what is actually good um, it has to be uh, conceived of as being good or better or great from the standpoint of God that is objectively and necessarily absolutely and universally better, good, and great, uh, and not necessarily what you and I might posit as good uh, or better or great, because we could completely disagree on such things, potentially. potentially. Well, why are we objecting, then, to just the quality of goodness? I mean, he defines a whole other host of qualities, such as being just and merciful and impassable and so forth, that also co come from the concept of being greater or better than, because it is better than to be just and merciful and all that than to be good. So does that not bring all of those other attributes of God into question? Yeah. I, yeah, it does. Yeah. And, because, and, go and ahead. In particular, I think, is the biggest one. Um, I, I think that, I mean, it, it does bring all of those into question, but we were kind of, I think, focusing on the existence one, just because that is kind of the, the heart of the argument. But no, I, you're absolutely right. It, it brings all those into question. If he's justifying it in terms of the fact that they are, are, are further the good, which I think he, he has to if he wants to make his argument simple and clear. Um, otherwise, God could be uh, it could be as as powerless as possible, and in that sense, be greater. Um, so yeah, absolutely. There's um, was, are we still um, talking about uh, objections here? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there's a there's a famous objection that we should we should acknowledge, um, uh, advanced by Immanuel Kant, who's a sort of a early Enlightenment uh, philosopher, uh, and he's sort of considered it sort of the the, the fellow who kind of laid this style of argument to rest. Um, uh, uh, the idea is that existence is kind of a weird property. The, the way to, the way to think about this is. Uh, I, I said, think of the, ontolo the ontological argument as a, a kind of challenge where he says, okay, I've got this definition, something in which no, no greater thing can be conceived. Uh, now, what belongs on the list that would answer to that definition, right? So, you know, you start putting things on the list, right? And, and just when you think, oh, there, I've done it, ask yourself, does it exist? And if you say, no, it doesn't have, no, that wouldn't necessarily exist, then you better add that to the list because that would make it greater. Um, one of the, uh, the the objections is that wait a minute, you're treating existence like it's some mere attribute or property, like any other attribute or property that you can just slap on. You know, I can say this glass is transparent, this glass is brittle, this glass is hard, this glass has mass. This glass, I mean, I can pile on attributes and. Um, but whenever I'm doing that, I'm always sort of a, a, assuming that if that attribute is, is, is genuinely applicable to this thing, it's to the extent that such a thing would, would, would exist. Um, it, but it, would it make sense to say of this glass that this glass 
has being? If I say that this glass has being, what have I told you about this glass? How is that different from saying, here is a glass? Now, supposing I said, here is a glass with being. This glass has being. Have I said anything other than, here's a glass? If I say, here's a glass with being, or here's a glass with existence, I, I've not actually added anything to your, your conception here. This is not an ordinary uh, attribute. Um, Right, um, it, it, it's the same thing with a unicorn. Think of a unicorn. Now think of a unicorn with existence. What? What's the difference? <laughs> can I um, can I can I raise yeah, a slight objection to that? Yeah, so sure. I think what he's really, I mean, I think the problem with that is that every every statement um, asserts its truthfulness, and every every description asserts the existence of the thing we're describing, or at least it's generally assumed that it does, uh, unless we start by saying, I don't necessarily think this thing exists, we're just discussing it for hypothetical purposes, but I do absolutely think it is a property of something, in the same way that truth is a value that something has. Okay, but, but we have to be careful about the kind of property it is. See, what, what Kant is arguing is that existence isn't a predicate, it's, it's, not, a, it's not just an attribute that you can slap on to something. For instance, supposing I say this shirt is white. Now, supposing I, I assert this shirt is white. Now I assert it is true that this shirt is white. What is the difference between saying asserting the shirt is white and asserting that it is true that the shirt is white? I don't think there's any. But there's no there's no difference, right? Yeah. The propositional content of both those sentences is the same, right? But but when yeah, we're talking about hypotheticals, though, I I don't think the propositional content is the same. I think that it it is it is important to say whether or not we think the thing exists. Um, in normal speech, I absolutely agree with you that it's it's asserted in every statement we make about things that the thing we're describing exists. But uh, when we're discussing things that we're uncertain of whether or not they exist, then it is important to specify. Uh, in the same way that when we're discussing statements, if we're uncertain of the truth value of them, it's, it's important to specify. Right, but but here, what Kant's trying to get at is this, is that existence is sort of what you're assuming whenever you talk about something, period. For instance, if I say, and now he's not assuming that the thing does exist, whether it exists is an open question, but you are, you are thinking of it as existing when you're thinking about it. In the okay. sense that um, that Anselm said earlier that the, you know the pool it exists at least in his imagination because he understands it. So we're not talking about existence in a particular place. We could be talking about existence within the understanding, not necessarily in reality. But it can go both ways, right? Uh, yeah, but not quite there because when, I, uh, for instance, think of a unicorn. Now, what is a unicorn? Mm -hmm. Supposing I were to say um, uh, a unicorn is just a concept. It's just an object of thought. Well, no, not really, because if, if, if a unicorn actually existed, it would be an animal. It wouldn't be a thought, mm -hmm. right? So when I think of a zebra, a zebra exists, okay? It exists in my mind and exists outside of my mind. But the thing in my mind, the object of thought, is of an animal. And similarly, even when I think of something that doesn't exist, I'm thinking of it as the kind of thing that it is. What kind of thing is a unicorn? When I'm thinking of a unicorn, even though it doesn't exist, I'm thinking of it as an animal. And another thing that I'm thinking about uh, when I'm thinking of a unicorn is I'm thinking of it as an existing thing. I'm not thinking of it as a non-existent thing. I'm thinking of it as an existing thing. It doesn't exist, in fact, but I am still thinking of it as a thing that exists, at least hypothetically. And so Anselm, uh, sorry, uh, Kant's uh, objection here is, look, um, you, you can't just slap 
the, the, the predicate or the attribute of existence onto something because there's a sense in which it's implicit in any object of thought when you're thinking about something. Um, so when you think of a, of a zebra, there's the thought of the zebra that exists in your mind. I can think about the thought of the zebra. I can think about the thought in my mind. Okay. Now what I've done is I made the object of thought the thought of the zebra, but I can also think of the zebra, even if the zebra doesn't exist. Can I, can I, can I try to present this in a way? I, I think I, sure. I understand what you're saying. So what he's saying is that when you talk about something, everything that you say about it is contingent on the assumption that it exists. Right. Uh, it is. It is an. It is an assumption that you make whenever you even begin to discuss something. It in the same way that when you make a logical argument, uh, your conclusion is true if and only. If, I mean, not if and only if, but but it is. It is necessarily true um, if the your 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 logic is valid and your premises are true. I mean that is. Um, and and in the same way when we discuss something. Everything we say about it is true. Uh, it, we're, we're asserting that, that these things are true only if it exists, essentially. So I, I think I right, think right, and then that's why I give the example of the uh, the, the, the shirt is white. When you know, the, uh, every time you say you you make a mere assertion, you know, this is a laptop, this is a microphone, this shirt is white. Um, it is exactly as if I had also said, it is the case that this is a microphone. It is the case that that is a laptop. It is the case that the shirt is white. Right, or it is true that the shirt is white, that this is a microphone, and that that is a laptop. I don't. It it is implicit in in any such a assertion that I am asserting that it is the case and that it is true. I don't need to say it. I, I add nothing to it by saying, oh, and by the way. So if I well, said this shirt is white, oh, and by the way, it's true that the shirt is white. I'm not really asserting anything other than the shirt is white. So the idea is it's sort of it's it's packed in there. It's part of what it is to ha to make an assertion. Uh, like even if I say the shirt is not white, even if I'm mistaken, but then I'm asserting that it is the case or that it is true that the shirt is not white, whether I'm right or wrong. Okay. It's independent of the fact that when you assert something, you are asserting it to be the case. Um, uh, so, well, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think someone making the analogical argument might be able to get out of that in this way. They're saying that that they're they're all they're hypothetically saying is that these things are true if it exists, but also. It is not as good as it could be if it didn't exist, um, uh, and I think that that may be uh, uh, helping one get out of it. That's that's really what they're saying is that that I mean it it this is all true on, uh, if it exists, but also none of this would be true uh, if it didn't exist. It wouldn't fit our criteria. We wouldn't be talking about this being if it didn't also exist. It must exist for our definition to make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the, the, here's the sort of the, the real rub. Um, it, it sort of took a kind of late development in, uh, in the field of logic, in an area of logic called modal logic, which is that that branch of logic that deals with what are called modalities. There are different kinds of modalities. There's like time and place modalities, before and after, and then there's modalities like necessity and possibility and impossibility and you know actuality and, and stuff like that. And um, so. Uh, there's a branch of logic that allows you to sort of analyze statements, propositions that have words like possible and necessary and, and impossible and uh, you know actual and, and things like that. And uh, using modal logic, uh, logicians sort of worked out that okay, this, this I mean there are different ways of of translating uh, Anselm's argument into formal uh, logic and into modal logic, but uh, Modal formulations have a tendency to come out the following way. They, 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 it turns out that, that if the, the way the argument is, is 
Um, if something than which no greater thing can be conceived um, exists, then it exists necessarily. That's what the argument actually proves. It proves, modally speaking, that if there is, if there is something than which no greater thing can be um, be conceived, if that if that exists, then its existence would be necessary. But unfortunately, it doesn't establish that it is the case, and so we don't know if it's necessary. You know, it's 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 like it's like saying either this is necessarily the case or it's not necessarily the case. Which is it? Well, I don't know. But if it's the case, then it's necessarily true. But if it's not the case, it's not necessarily true. Yeah. I wonder I, which it is. And and this is one of the problems with this 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 argument is cashed out in modal logic. It, it turns out that it doesn't quite it doesn't quite prove that God necessarily exists. It just proves that if God exists, He exists necessarily. The the other problem with that is that uh, from the determinist point of view, everything that exists exists necessarily, and so it's a totally vacuous claim to determinist. Um, well, no, but I mean, in determinism, we're talking about physical necessity, right? And this wouldn't be a matter of physical or causal necessity; it would be a matter of metaphysical or logical necessity. Yes, but he might not be necessary, or God might not be necessary in every possible world, and so it wouldn't be metaphysically necessary in every possible world because it didn't exist in every possible world. Well, if it didn't exist in every possible world, okay, maybe I misunderstood you there. It, 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 let me let me just add this and tell me if I if I misunderstood you. If it didn't exist in every possible world, and a possible world, by the way, is not some other universe. It's just a logically possible world. Like there's a logically possible world where Ozzy is bald, and there's a, not, a logically possible world where Ozzy has five hairs on his head. Um, and then there's the actual world where I have this beautiful, luxurious head of hair. Um, now, All the other Aussies hate you. Yeah, uh, yeah, the other Aussies are so uh, are so uh, <laughs> so envious. Um, so, uh, if something doesn't exist at all uh, uh, logically possible worlds, then it's not strictly speaking necessary. It's only metaphysically necessary if it in, in fact does exist at all logically possible worlds. Um, now, I I, I might have misunderstood what you said there. Is that what you were taking into account, or not? Well, what I was yeah, what I was saying is that that it is only logically necessary in the worlds in which it exists. And if determinism is true, then that is true of everything that exists in any possible world. That it is logically necessary, or it is it is it is necessary in any world that it exists in. Um, oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Well, see the yeah. It, we're kind of talking at cross purposes here because very often the talk of, of logically possible worlds or possible worlds period is a way of explaining what we mean by something being logically necessary. Something is logically necessary only if it exists. Right. This is what what's called possible world semantics. Mm, sure. It's the it's a way of cashing out or explaining what what it means to say that something is logically possible. Something is logically possible if it exists at some worlds but not all worlds. Something is logically necessary if it exists at all worlds, and something is logically impossible if it exists in no worlds. But um, the problem is, you've admitted it's logical contingency because it's, conting it's contingent on its own existence. If it does exist, it must exist in that world. Yeah, but, that's right. But, but in, in which case, it becomes the same as the determinist statement, that it is necessary in the worlds which, in which it exists. Because um, it's, Well, no, it's a little tricky, though, because uh, well, this is going to take us far afield. There's logical necessity. There's sometimes metaphysical necessity that's distinguished from logical necessity. And there's sure. just physical causal necessity. You've made it contingent. That's the problem. It's yeah. no longer necessary. I mean, right? It, it, yes. It, no, you are right. You are right. It, you're, I actually stand corrected on that. You're absolutely right about what you're saying there. Um, 
Okay. Anyway, I think. Sorry, I've had... everyone. We we kind of gone off on a little bit. It's a complicated question. It's it's kind of interesting that this argument. I mean, our tendency is to think, well, what the hell could an 11th century, you know, monk have to say about this? This whole bishop, you know, like, you know, he couldn't have come up with anything clever that actually makes us still scratch our heads. Well, in fact, yes. You know, I mean, I mean, no, no less a figure than Kurt. Gödel, the you know the the father of the incompleteness theory, one of the most brilliant logicians um, of the 20th century, came up with his own version of the ontological proof. I mean, th th this is a really subtle argument. Uh, people have been arguing it for a long time. It's it's not about to go away. Uh, it's it's not settled. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of traction. Doesn't have a lot of currency in philosophical circles. But it you know because people are no longer confident that it proves what it proves. But it's not like someone has, you know, established that it's junk. Uh, there are problems, though, um, and and I'm, I wouldn't hear it when I'm saying it's, uh, you know, haven't established that it's junk. The problem is with with its validity. You know, the you know how valid is the argument, um, and of course, its validity rests in part on how one construes the premises in the argument, like like the issue that we were having about, well, what, what does greatness mean and, and stuff like that? What's a great-making property? What do we want to include in that? Um, uh, and, and from that, that'll determine whether or not existence belongs, you know, is, is it, whether it would be, wh whether it would be greater if it existed or not. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, I actually, I actually really like it after reading it. I, I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's, uh, it, it brings up. I, I think that the value of, a, of a, an argument isn't necessarily whether or not it demonstrates what it seeks to demonstrate, but what kinds of questions it gets us to think about. Uh, in a sense, and in that sense, I think it's a wonderful argument. <laughs> it's also short. It's not a long read. I mean, it's it's old and it's written in an old style, and and it you know you're gonna scratch. You're gonna have to read it more than once. But I mean, it has the the the, the merit of not being long, so it's not hard to reread. And you just keep rereading those passages that you get stuck on. You know, you're going to get stuck on as soon as you get to chapter two and you read that ontological argument. You're going to get stuck. You just expect to read it five times, but it's very, very short, so it's, it's, it's worth. Out of curiosity, uh, someone does. It, is there anyone here who actually understands Kurt Goedel's ontological argument? Because I've been trying to find an easy ex way to have it explained to me, but I have yet to uh, fully comprehend it. I, I don't understand modal logic well enough yeah. to parse any of those. Um, Alvin Plantinga has one. I have a, a friend who's a modal logician. Uh, well, he's a logician, but he, you know, sort of specializes in modal logic. There's no such thing really as a modal logician. But, um, and uh, you know, he tried to explain it to me. He understands it. He says, no, there's problems with it, but you know, it's probably formally valid. Uh, but there's some some question. But I mean, I I can't. I don't understand modal logic well enough to, to to see that yeah it's it's definitely right or definitely wrong you know and that's the thing with logical arguments they should be either definitely right or definitely wrong you know <laughs> they're either valid or they're invalid irrespective of the soundness of the premises you know but I can't I can't parse it I'm afraid I think the problem is that that when it, what becomes really ambiguous is when when uh, an argument assumes certain definitions that are not explicitly laid out in full, and it's impossible to lay out every definition in full, and so you it, it can become very challenging to analyze whether or not an argument is valid. Now, well, Gödel's argument is I mean he's a he's a modern logician uh, of of the sort of the, the highest caliber, um, and he lays out every definition that he's going to need. Um, he, I mean, he, it's it's absolutely um, explicit what what his terminology means, and then he lays out his um, 
his assumptions and you know produces some some conclusions. He has some premises. He states his uh, inference rules. He states the theorems, and you know it's all very very uh, well laid out actually. So well, I believe that, but the problem is is that unless the language is well founded, unless the language is is somehow like axiomatically founded, you're always going to be able to go deeper and find definitions of definitions, yes. and you can easily sneak something in, often accidentally through that. Um, yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about more. Yeah. yeah. Even if you're explicit, you can. There's still implicit definitions involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Although it's pretty hard in philosophy to come down with a, a knock-down argument for uh, something or other. It's a very contentious field. Well, I mean, it's it's like science that way. I mean, you know, there's no. I mean, you know, everything that you do in the sciences is only provisionally true, right? I mean, no matter how well supported the theory is, you still have to admit, well, you know what, you know, we might discover something that completely upsets the apple cart and requires us to sort of reconfigure the whole thing. I mean, so that, I mean, that's as true in science as it, as it is in philosophy. There's no, no difference here um, uh, with respect to that. Um, you know, the um, part of the, the difficulty here with, uh, with this is that there's an awful lot at stake and what's hard here is establishing what are the premises are they sound are they are, are the premises correct that that's the, the the real difficulty here i mean when people logicians tell me that Gödel's uh, uh uh version of the ontological argument is valid well i'm not going to challenge it i mean i would never challenge kurt uh, <laughs> total on this and i you know other logicians can certainly vouch for it i can't tell but because I don't understand modal logic well enough, but uh, I know it a little bit, but not not well enough for that. And um, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's valid. <laughs> <laughs> this is different from uh, Gödel's proof, right? It's a separate ontological argument versus the proof that he made mathematically that his system. Oh no no that's the incompleteness yeah no no that's yeah that's his, his sort of proof that with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe I should mention. Well, because the proof you is what well, I'm familiar with, so, but I'm not familiar with his ontological arguments. So. Oh, okay. No. He. he yeah. Okay. Let, let me uh, sort of clear this up. Uh, Kurt Gödel is is famous for something called the uh, incompleteness theorem. He he proved that within any system of logic or uh, within any formal system, math, set theory, geometry, anything that is formally definable, um, that there will always be. Um, uh, 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 propositions in that system that cannot be proven um, uh, with that system cannot be proven. Period, um, and uh, and he he proved that. <laughs> That's a proof. That is sort of sort of a, a basic datum now that, that that people just assume in logic and math and set theory and geometry uh, all of these uh, formal domains. It's sort of a uh, sort of a a, a, a bedrock fact uh, in those fields and that's what he's most famous for but incidentally he sort of as a kind of uh, sideline hobby he decided he would try to work on the on the ontological argument and try to produce a modal version of it and and he produ he produced a a formally valid one uh, that is the conclusion follows from the premises but of course everything hinges on whether the premises are true you know, whether or not it's an actual proof is that, is that what you were getting at uh, yes. Adrian? yeah okay so are we then saying, um, you know, despite all of our objections to the argument, that Anselm's argument, whether whether or not it has any bearing on the actual existence of God and reality, that the argument itself is consistent? That is to say, it, it does everything that it says it does and doesn't 
contradict itself anywhere? Um, well, an argument can't contradict itself, right? Well, well an invalid one can. I mean, yeah. Well, and no, no. Well, okay. Um, well, an, an argument is either valid or invalid, uh, and you either it either you can either generate inconsistencies or not. And if you can generate inconsistencies, then you've got a, a reductio ad absurdum of the argument, uh, in which case you've demonstrated that it's invalid. Uh, it, maybe is that what you mean? Like, I just want to make sure that. I'm, I suppose I'm trying to think of, um, you know, trying to remember. I, it's been so long since I've done formal logic. Um, does the argument is it formally valid? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the all right. What we, that that's an argument that can't be answered, uh, or rather, a claim that can't be answered. Let let, let me just make the distinction. Uh, okay. uh, you obviously know the distinction, uh, Adrian. Uh, we distinguish between what uh, between validity and soundness. Uh, a sound argument uh, is a, is an argument where the premises are true. A valid argument doesn't have to have true premises. It just means that the conclusion follows necessarily from the premises, even if the premises are false. You know, uh, so there's all kinds of arguments like that where it's you know logic is just a garbage in, garbage out uh, process. And what makes it garbage in, garbage out is that uh, the the the, uh, the rules of inference guarantee that if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. Um, but that doesn't say anything about whether the premises are true, and so that doesn't guarantee that the conclusion is true. Um, so what you're asking then is, is is it the, are we saying that the argument is formally valid, but not necessarily sound because the one or more of the premises might be wrong? Um, yeah, I, I would say well we we can't tell if the argument is formally valid because we have to we'd have to translate that argument into some formal argument like in, okay. like we would in formal logic and there's a lot of disputation about how to translate that argument that and that's why we have like modal logic came along okay. um, to try to sort of and it's because when as soon as you start talking about words like possibility and necess necessity and stuff like that um, um, concepts like that um, which come into play in this argument you need a branch of logic called modal logic, and that branch of logic didn't get developed until the you know just in the twentieth century, very recently. So, you know, we, we were never able to analyze it as rigorously as we wanted to before, and um, so there were ways of translating that argument so that it seemed to come out true necessarily, like th that is valid, and then there were ways of of translating the argument where it wasn't valid, and it sort of depended on how on how charitable. And generous you want it to be in interpreting the the, the premises, um, so I don't think there's a definitive answer to that question. That, that's my view. I mean, I think I think yeah, I, I I can't answer that either. What I can say though is that I think it's a valuable argument. I, I don't think um, it's a particularly convincing one, but it's a very interesting argument. I think it's well worth looking into. I mean, that's why we're talking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it gives you the most bang for the buck too. Like if if I was you know, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or some other monotheist uh, who wanted to posit a god um, like the the god of the Abrahamic religions, you know, who's supposed to be all good and all powerful and all knowing and things like that. You know, this is the one that you get all that for free. You get that it's sort of built into the the concept of something than which no greater thing can be thought or can can be conceived. Uh, whereas all the other arguments, the you know, teleological, cosmological arguments. You need separate arguments for all of those to try to get to the sort of close to that that God of of the Bible. Whereas this one gets you the closest to it; it gives you the most. So I, I, I and I, it's so subtle too. It's like it's 
it's you know finding fault with it the obvious faults the obvious objections that people toss out th those are almost always wrong they almost they you, they almost always end up sounding like the, the fool that he describes uh, in chapter two the uh, well and, and throughout actually not just there um, where he says you know the, the person keeps talking about the object of thought in their head and they're forgetting what they're supposed to be thinking about yes the object of thought in your head yes that only exists in your mind and that doesn't have to have existence outside of your mind but I'm not asking you to think about that I'm asking you to think about something that would have to be beyond that if you think about it clearly if, when you realize that the object of thought in your head if it meets this if it answers to this definition could not merely exist inside your head it would have to exist you know outside of you know between your ears it would have to actually be out there um, that that's really really a a, a kind of a ingenious move also, uh, I think there's a part of it where he gives two separate formulations of the argument. Uh, the first one does commit the fallacy of equivocation, where he, um, where he equivocates notions of existence uh, existing in the head as, and and existing out there. However, there's a he has the second ontological proof where he doesn't necessarily equivocate in terms of existence. He just says, "Okay, you have an idea in your head, but that idea is only what I would call great if it has the." property of existence and then you go into an abductio. Uh, I'm not sure where specifically his second argument is. Um, but I mean, I, uh, I actually don't think he makes the an error of equivocating between the two at all. He, he yeah, separates yeah. them out. He says that, that, it is, that there is clearly a difference between that which exists in conception and that which exists in reality. And for it to be the greatest thing we can conceive of, though, it, it would have to exist in both. Yeah, uh, I think he makes a distinction between the greatest thing you are conceiving and the greatest thing conceivable. So oh. oh, sorry, Epicurus. Go on, go on. No, 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 that's it. I, I was actually gonna, I was gonna ask. Um, you, you brought up an objection to it. Um, before oh, uh, Aquinas's objection was essentially that it was question begging, because uh, essentially uh, for Aquinas, the greatest thing. Uh, Aquinas, I'll just give a bit of background on Aquinas and then go into his main Egyptian. For Aquinas, he was uh, an Aristotelian. He believed that if you want to prove the existence of God, you can do it a priori in the, sen in the same way uh, Anselm was doing. He thought if you have to come to God's existence, you have to observe nature, how everything is, and then make a metaphysical argument in terms of how it, it goes back to God as opposed to just saying... Um, just coming up with the conception and then uh, proving it by definition. So he had that kind of problem with um, Anselm's argument, and yeah, and I think that's a bad one. Like that—that's the one that yeah. that that yeah, it's bad because there's no there's no way Anselm is merely defining God into existence or smuggling it. He's not. It's not that he's defining God into existence. It's that he's question begging God's. It's that uh, he finds the argument to be in a way question begging because. If that is, if you're proving the greatest thing conceivable, if you're proving uh, the notion of the greatest conceivable being by uh, just uh, abducting a part of his existence, then in a way, then in a way, you're just asserting it. It's well, well, the objection that you brought to me was that, I mean, mind you, you might you might think something differently now, but what you said was something like um, his pro part of his problem with it is that that uh, he assumes that this thing. Uh, he assumes that it is conceivable, um, and and by virtue he assumes that it is that it can be con that it is conceived of. Yes, that's it. And I actually disagree with you there. Um, I, I I profoundly disagree with you. Um, and and here's why. Profoundly, well. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, profoundly. Um, so I think the difference is the, the difference between, I mean, I think well, what you said is that it implies, that the, the, the fact that it is conceivable implies that it is conceived of, and I disagree with that. Um, let's take knowing, for example, because it's a very similar concept. So to say that I know something implies that it is knowable, but to say that it is knowable does not imply that it is known. Uh, and, and in the same way, to say something is conceived of is to imply that it is conceivable, but to say something is conceivable is not to imply that it is conceived of. What I think he does have to, 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 to demonstrate is that this God can be conceived of um, without necessarily allowing us to conceive of it because he says, I mean, if it is, if it is the greatest thing that can be conceived but it is not conceivable, uh, then you've got a bit of a problem there. Then it isn't the greatest thing that can be conceived of. It is, it is, it is something else. And I mean, he could get around that simply by saying his definition is actually a, a thing which no greater can be conceived of. He doesn't necessarily imply that it is even conceivable. Mm. But he does say that it is. He grants that in the beginning of the first chapter. You know, um, that you are what we believe you to be. Yeah. No, no. I think he's. A, it's making a different point there. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I'm, oh, I'll have to look back. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, and then I'll go look for it. Sure. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Adrian, what he says um, earlier, at the, like at the very beginning, is that that we cannot apprehend him. You know, you know, we're these fallen creatures, sinful nature. We're blinded by sin. We we can't uh, properly mm -hmm. apprehend him. But when he when he, I think what he means, and I, this is a matter of interpretation now. Um, this isn't this isn't sort of data that I'm throwing out there. But mm -hmm. my interpretation of of what when he says. Um, that you are what we think you to be. He's meaning he is. You are what we take you to be based on you know what, what we as Christians have had revealed to us. You know, you know this is what we take you to be. Um, it's kind of like uh, when uh, Aquinas in his Five Ways um, in uh, Summa Theologica when he, he proves God five different ways. You know, he always says, and and this we call God. You know, he's it, we, this we call God. Well. Mm -hmm. We have independent reasons for why we call this thing God, um, but you know these things are things that would be rightly called God. So I think that I think that's what he's getting at there. But let um, me go look to make sure I'm right. I could be wrong. Go ahead. Okay. I mean, it may be that I'm um, I'm conflating belief with understanding, but I'm I'm going with that logical link by what he says at the very end of chapter one. Um, I believe in order to understand, for I also believe that unless I believe, I shall not understand. So the 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 quality of of belief leads to the understanding and thus to the conceivability that Jerome is talking about. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, actually, that's very important, actually, because he was actually going to, what was he, he was going to title Prosologia on something else, but there was actually, there was a, something else, somebody else had beat him to it. The, the um, of that faith title seeking actually, understanding. That's it, faith seeking understanding. The idea is that, uh, thank you, uh, yeah, what, what he's saying here is that he's trying to you, you, you have to believe first. If you don't believe first, you can't get as far as understanding. Yeah, you, and um, and uh, th th that's what he's endeavoring to do here. right? I mean, th this work, Proslogion, is offered as a kind of um, a meditation in the sense of like a prayerful meditation to God. Um, it, it's sort of not offered, uh, I mean, it is also offered to try to Block this doctrine of created eternal verities with respect to God's existence, but I mean, if you when you read it, if any if anyone's listening to this and decides to, they want to read it, it, it it reads like a prayer, you know, yeah. um, and because that's what it is, it, it's a kind of meditative offering uh, to God. I'm gonna go uh, 
uh, look here uh, to see if I can uh, find the part that I was talking about so I can substantiate my point here. Because, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I I understand better what you mean, uh, Adrian. Thank mm -hmm. you. So I, mean, I, I just thought that point continues to fascinate me because that for me is is I don't know kind of the basis for his argument in the sense of encompassing God within that intelligibility as opposed to just throwing up his hands and saying you know what this this is unintelligible. I I think I think what he's arguing is not that hum humans or humanity could ever conceive of this being, but that in principle it is conceivable. In the same way right. that, for example, I admit that it is in principle conceivable that someone could know absolutely everything if they had an infinite mind. And mm -hmm. so presumably the only person that can understand and fully conceive of God is God. Um, so I, I think that maybe... Yes, he does do that, actually. It's, yeah, he says at some point that God is, is inconceivable to humans, um, but, but that's, that's different. Um, and and I, I think the, the difference here is that there's the distinction between in principle conceivable and, and conceived of, and he's referring only to something that is in principle conceivable, not something that is conceived of. Yes. After all, something... Right, 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 right. Oh, uh, by the way, I know we're far past the historical points that we were in the introduction, but uh, I'm not sure if one of you corrected me on this, but uh, I was wrong about Anselm being born in uh, England. He was an Italian, so uh, well, that's my bad. Just, yeah, wanted to, just wanted to correct myself uh, earlier on on that one. Mm -hmm. Did you find uh, what you were looking for, Ozzy? No, I'm still looking for it. Um... It's a different translation than the one I used to read, um, awesome. and um, maybe uh, my impression was based on the other translation, because uh, I'm not finding it here. Hmm. My translation seems to imply that as well. That they were well, it's, impl it's implied when he talks about sort of the, you know, the, the darkness that we live in, and... Uh, the darkness that blinds his eye. That's yeah, right. yeah. In the, towards the end of chapter one? Yeah, um, well, it it's, it's more like in the middle, isn't it? Um, he talks about it repeatedly. Um. I, I've got um, I think the last paragraph of chapter one for me, if I'm thinking of it right, is I acknowledge, Lord, and I thank you that you have created in me this image of you, so that I may remember you, think of you, and love you. Yet this image is so eroded by my vices, so clouded by it. the smoke of my sin, it. that it cannot do what it was created to do unless you renew and refashion. That's it. Thank you. Precisely. Yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> and I, I think he makes that point more later on as well. Um, yes. Yes, he does. And chapter fourteen, I think. There is a fair bit of repetition in the Prologian, but that's fine because what he's talking about is fairly hard to understand, and so it's actually helpful in this case. <laughs> yeah, but that that the core of that ontological argument is just in chapter two. Like you don't even have to sort of, you know, read. Uh, Tons of stuff. Um, you know, uh, in fact, if you get as far as chapter two and you read it five times and you come away thinking, okay, it makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, actually, here's sort of a rule of thumb: if you read Proslogion or any, you know, serious philosophical work, and you read it and you come away thinking it's just nuts and stupid, you didn't understand it. <laughs> you know, uh, just just keep rereading it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's perfectly reasonable to come around. Thinking it's wrong, but if of you course, think yes. it, is, it is, it is just ridiculous. 
I would agree with Ozzy completely here. It probably was just misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, even, even wrong scientific theories are usually, old ones, are usually really well formulated if you understand them. And they may sound absurd on the surface, but when you actually listen to the context within which the, the theory is being formulated, it makes a lot more sense. Well, that's why we still study phlogiston at Scheimer. Exactly. Oh, you actually you, yes. you, you go through phlogiston oh, theory? Absolutely. Oh, right. That's great. Mm -hmm. So you that's fantastic. Uh, phlogist, uh, what would phlogistic theory be for anyone who doesn't understand it? <laughs> oh, let's see how well I can summarize it. Okay, so phlogiston theory um, was made in an attempt to explain oxidation and rusting and it, it um, talking about um, phlogiston as a quality that was present in the air and it was only after you burned it all up, dephlogisticated air, which is what uh, oxygen is. Uh, so, right. uh, yeah. This was at a time before we'd isolated gases and, yes. and, and things like that. If, you mm -hmm. know, if, you know. mm -hmm. So they, they couldn't figure out you know, why things burned or, or rusted or things like that, and so they just assumed it was the substance in the air that got used up. Which is, you know, in essence, true. I mean, it was a substance in the air being used up, just a different one than they were labeling it. Yeah, well, it's kind of like positing the ether, right? Yeah. For a long time, people, you know, in physics, people posited the ether, and sort of by our lights, it, it seems kind of stupid and 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 far-fetched and ridiculous, and you know, and then, you know, it took a long time to sort of dismiss that theory of the ether. And oddly enough, there's a certain sense in, in which we're back at the ether now. Yeah. <laughs> but it does, I think the validity of it in the science is, is just the fact that they can garner some kind of data out of it. Even if the ether theory was wrong, it, it was, yeah. people still use those models because they work to get something like, just, uh, I'll even use something a little more ridiculous. Uh, the notion that the, that the uh, earth, sun revolves around the earth. Uh, people might scoff at uh, Ptolemy, but in fact, if you look at uh, Ptolemy's uh, the in terms of uh, how uh, the in terms of how uh, that uh, version of the universe worked, the maps they made of it were so concise that if you sailed from Europe all the way to uh, New York, you'd only be off by what a uh, few thousand yards, well, not a few thousand, a uh, few thousand miles. It was. Um, it was a, it was a lot more impressive in terms of the mechanics they could have garnered out of that, although it proved to be wrong. Yeah, and and I, and I think in the same way that these sorts of um, progressively developing scientific theories work, philosophy is very similar. These 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 ideas build on one another, and the next idea may completely refute the last one, but it is only the idea that it is because we had the last idea and we refuted it. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, just drawing the parallel between scientific and philosophical inquiry. Um, I, I, I think that um, we should probably uh, wrap this up soon. I think we've, we've kind of uh, talked um, as much as we're probably going to about Anselm's argument. Um, uh, is, does anyone have any closing things they want to say? Anything that they think we missed? Um, well, there's lots more to say, but I mean, you know, two hours is sort of a, a long gab fest on this. Um, so. I'll, well, is there I, anything I've had enough now? That's the question. <laughs> well, hearing this has actually given me a greater appreciation for where Anselm is in history, because a lot of what I've studied has just been um, outside of any context, so to speak. So I've evaluated it on its own. I did not realize for what he was writing it for. So that's also very helpful. Mm, right. Yeah, that that is. I didn't. I I would not have have known that had you not uh, said that, Ozzy. Although that, that's actually a kind of a rare tidbit of information, and it and it's not because it's it, it you know, 
I mean, it shouldn't be so rare. It's just that most nowadays people don't care about these sort of moldy old debates that that, that don't animate us now. Uh, but it, I, I happen to take. I know that only because I happen to take a, a course um, uh, with a, a a fellow who was a, a historian of philosophy who who sort of specialized in this period and and knew all of the the sort of the intellectual landscape uh, of that particular era of the 11th century and and uh, so he was able to sort of situate uh, Anselm in that in the, in the controversies of his day, um, which is kind of nice uh, as opposed to always assuming that he's talking to us, you know, and that he's trying to speak to me, you know, Ozzy the atheist or something like that. You know, he he wasn't, but it doesn't matter. He still speaks to me. Indeed, I, I agree. So um, yeah, it was a lovely discussion. Uh, thank you for all listening. Uh, I hopefully will be here next Friday with another topic. Um, we might have a different group of people. Some people might not be able to make it, but ho hopefully a similar group, uh, hopefully a similar topic. So have a good night. Um, thank you all for participating, and thank you all for uh, listening. Good night. Good night. Thank you.